you know, it's very intricate to get to know the internal world of another person and how they tick. And if you aren't naturally wired in the same way and to look at the world the same way, it really does take some inquisitiveness. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber. Today's topic is a little bit different, but certainly no less interesting, relevant, or helpful. Because no doubt, if we are parenting a differently wired child, then many of us, whether we are neurotypical or neurodivergent, are coupled or co-parenting with a differently wired partner. If this is you, then today's conversation will be especially relevant. My guest is licensed clinical social worker and family and couples therapist, Kate McNulty. Kate is herself autistic, and in this episode, we dig into a lot of important issues surrounding what she calls mixed neurotype couples, the common challenges and misconceptions, fostering connection and understanding as partners and parents, handling a later-in-life diagnosis, and much more. Kate also tells us about her new book, Love and Asperger's, Practical Strategies to Help Couples Understand Each Other and Strengthen Their Connection. If you're in a mixed neurotype relationship or have wondered about your own child's future prospects for partnership, Kate's perspective and practical strategies will undoubtedly give you hopeful food for thought and perhaps even challenge some of your assumptions. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Before I get to that, if you are new to Tilt Parenting and found this podcast while searching for resources to support you on your journey of parenting a neurodivergent child, I have a few other resources I want to be sure you know about. My book, Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope, it just hit its three-year anniversary this month, and it's available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. In Differently Wired, I share my best practices and practical advice for supporting not just our kids, but ourselves throughout this journey. And if you're looking to make some quick, positive shifts in your day-to-day life, I invite you to do my free Differently Wired 7-Day Challenge. You'll get a short daily video highlighting one actionable thing you can do right away to impact the way you think, feel, and act in relation to your child. You also get a downloadable mini workbook and access to a private Facebook group, and it's totally free. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash seven day to sign up. That's tiltparenting.com slash seven day. Thanks so much. And now here is my conversation with Kate. Hello, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for making time to talk with me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. I was intrigued when you reached out to me and you shared your new book with me. And yeah, I think we're going to have an interesting conversation today. And before we get into that and learn more about your book and the work that you do, could you tell us a little bit about kind of who you are in the world and a little bit about your story? Yeah, I've been a therapist for many years. This has been my only career. And I didn't know much about autism until one of my kids started talking to me about it as a young adult. And when that came up, I I started reading and researching and recognized that I'm autistic and that I had two autistic kids. And uh, it's been really a, a wonderful um, pivot in my career to learn about this and get to work with more autistic people and 
So when this um, book was offered to me to write, uh, I was just really delighted to plow into the, the research and get uh, even more well-informed about it. And how long ago was that, that you self-identified as being autistic and kind of made that pivot? It, it's been about eight years now. So mm-hmm. I've had a lot of time to get used to the idea and kind of construct a new identity because I think something that happens for many of us when we recognize this, especially later in life, is that you you do this kind of retrospective and it's like zooming through your life with a, a wider lens. And so having that recognition that explains so many events or incidences or experiences is just really a lot to get used to. Mm-hmm. Does that? I'm curious if that still happens, even if you still are making connections about things from your childhood and your new identity. Yeah, absolutely. And also just looking back through what I know of the generations as well and speculating on how my parents, who I now clearly recognize were autistic, may have um, sensed things differently from the majority population or just had maybe unusual experiences that I didn't, I didn't come to recognize until sadly it was too late to talk to them about it. But I still kind of feel like I have conversations in my head with them all the time Mm. about being autistic. Mm. I think that so many listeners are going to relate to this experience. I know that many people in this differently wired community in the tilt parenting audience have discovered their own neurodivergence through going through the process of learning more about their kids. And so I I think it's really such an interesting perspective to just know what that experience is like as an adult to reclaim and make sense of. And then I think it changes how we show up for our kids too, right? Absolutely. So we are going to be talking about your book, which came out last fall. It's called Love and Asperger's, Practical Strategies to Help Couples Understand Each Other and Strengthen Their Connection. So can you share more about why this topic and why you decided to write this book? This came up for me because as I did more uh, reading and listening about being autistic, one theme that was persistent, especially in the mental health arena, was spouses who married or partnered with autistic people and joined this kind of chorus of complaint. Like there was this sort of stigmatizing of the autistic partner and a way that um, neurotypical partners felt like they were making sacrifices or they were burdened with an autistic partner, or it was just very difficult to be uh, with somebody who was autistic. And I just thought, wow, somebody needs to step up and send out a different message because I think that's really doing a disservice to not only the autistic people, but anybody in the relationship like that, that there's probably a lot being missed. So as I saw more couples and did more um, thinking and reading about this, I certainly came to find that there are many traits that autistic people have that are just misperceived or misinterpreted by their neurotypical partners. And so anybody who can help shed some light on that, I thought, well, that will be a good service to offer. So because I've I've been seeing couples for most of the last 20 years, so I was able to um, sort of represent the autistic point of view, but also write the book as a uh, an experienced couples therapist. It's such a unique and important lens that you bring to this. And I will say that I hear, 
I hear this a lot too. You know, I have a, a membership community where I'm getting to know a number of parents who who are, you know, co-parenting, raising kids with an autistic or otherwise neurodivergent partner. And and that is that is its own thing, right? That is a whole mm-hmm. other level of understanding and, and work really that needs to be done in order to make that work so that everyone can show up for the kids uh, as best as possible. But I'm wondering if you could share a little bit with us about, you know, what are some of the most common issues that you hear about from couples who maybe you use this term mixed neurotype, which I had never seen before. And I, I really like that language. So what are some of the most common challenges that couples in a mixed neurotype relationship are dealing with? One that comes up so very frequently is a spouse who will say, uh, my partner is not affectionate enough. Uh, I don't know what they're feeling. They don't talk to me. So those kinds of patterns are things that uh, I think neurotypical people are operating out of a limited kind of framework about what what affection looks like and how it gets expressed. And they're thinking in conventional ways that might involve romantic gestures or getting flowers or kind of unexpected, spontaneous, um, seductive behaviors, things like that. And so just helping people see that your autistic partner may be doing really uh, kind things for you or considerations or just wanting to offer a kind of steadiness to you in your life that goes unrecognized. And okay, so I'm wondering that brought up another question that I'd love to Mm -hmm. hear if there are other common challenges that these couples have. But I'm wondering if this is something that isn't evident at the beginning of a relationship. Like our our clients who come to you tend to be um, kind of down the road and they're they're realizing this is happening and and it somehow wasn't as evident in the beginning or Mm -hmm. is that the way that it's always been? I'm just curious what that journey is like for couples. Yeah. I think part of what happens at the beginning of any relationship, of course, is infatuation blinds us all. That's (laughs) the way we're, we're made. Uh, So, you know, people get, uh, they fall in love with one another and they later get a fuller picture of who the other person is. But I think, too, like characteristic of the relationships that I was writing about, the autistic person who's uh, dating a new partner is often doing a lot of masking, mm-hmm. which is a term we use for uh, autistic people kind of propping up a facade of looking normal or neurotypical, trying to fit in, um, maybe being on their best behavior and trying to refrain from certain um, impulses they might have, like fidgeting or moving around a lot, or um, maybe saying odd things, unexpected things, but they're not so likely to do that in a dating context. So then when people get to know each other better later as the relationship develops, some of these behaviors emerge because they're, they're the natural person. You know, that's the way the person is inclined to act in an ordinary living situation, And so these things might be off-putting or irritating to the neurotypical partner who thought they had somebody different. Mm -hmm. And then later they find about these other tendencies or how much quiet the person might need or how little they want to attend family functions or loud, crowded events. Uh, You know, they went along during the dating time because that's what you do to be sociable. But as the 
months or years go by, it becomes apparent that's not the way they actually live or what they prefer to do. And so how do you guide these couples through figuring this out together? I'm assuming that couples who come to you with these challenges or things showing up in their relationship. And the reason why you wrote the book is because they want to work on it. They, they want to stay connected and um, they need guidance and how to do that. So what are some of the ways that you support couples in working through this? So often by the time the couple comes to see me, the gateway is to help them parent well together. You know, their, their agenda, if nothing else is like, we want to do right by our children, even if we're struggling in our marriage So helping them recognize that their kids need to be in an atmosphere of affection and calm and seeing parents support one another is a huge motivator for couples to work on the relationship. And so a lot of what I do is talk to people about what we know from the research about how couples can express caring and friendship to one another and look for those uh, look for those overtures that their partner is making. So, for example, with an autistic partner, maybe the ways that they show "I love you" are things like remembering to pick up the kind of tea you like at the store, or if you're going somewhere new, they might be the ones to put the Google directions in your phone, or they might be um, trying to plan ahead about some kind of family event or outing and choose something that they know they can tolerate. So that's the kind of invitation that they might extend. We'll be right back after this quick break. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So you talked about parenting and and I'd love to get into that a little bit more in terms of what do you see? What I, I'll share with you what, what I hear from a lot of parents is that sometimes if they have a partner who is autistic or otherwise neurodivergent, um, sometimes they're not on the same page or they're initially there might be some, well, I was like that. And, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It just not, not a willingness to kind of go down that path or this parent or co-parent may not have already self-identified or been um, identified as being on the spectrum or neurodivergent. So, so that is a source of frustration that I hear in parents and they kind of don't know how to navigate that journey. I'm wondering what you hear in terms of that co-parenting piece and and where the biggest challenges lie. So you're saying the neurodivergent person might minimize difficulties that their child is having that are visible to the neurotypical person? Yes. Yeah. So I do think that that's a very uh, common scenario. And I think that, um, you know, just getting the best objective information you can about your child's difficulties or behaviors And just trying to be objective and showing that uh, we have information from research is often a really appealing stance for the neurodivergent person who Mm -hmm. might be convinced by something that's beyond just uh, the other parent's subjective observations. Mm -hmm. And really having that, I mean, having that compassion too for your partner and being able to tell them, look, I see our child struggling. And if you struggled that way too, that's wrong. That's unfortunate. I, I'm sorry that you went through that. You know, being able to offer them the, in retrospect, it's kind of a wish fulfillment to say, oh my goodness, I can imagine how hard that must have been for you as a child. I wish someone had taken care of this for you better. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you could a- answer this question from two perspectives, and I hope that I can express it in a way that makes sense. So again, a lot of parents who I know are listening to this, they may be having a growing realization that their partner's neurology may be similar to their child's. Mm -hmm. And that can be challenging um, for both people in that partnership, right? For a neurotypical parent who's trying to figure out how to support a child and then also realizing, wait, I'm going through the same challenges with my partner. Mm -hmm. They may feel really isolated. And then the neurodivergent partner also feeling not seen, not understood, um, not getting the support that they may need. So for, from both of those sides, how, how do you help both those parents work together? One, one thing that I um, 
teach people in therapy, you know, that I model for them and I want to encourage them to do in therapy is to listen for the part that you can't agree with about what your partner's saying, or listen for the part that you can validate. Like, even if you're in opposition or it's hard to make a plan, having the attitude that I'm going to look for where the overlap is and focus on that and see if that helps us get further down the path. I think that's one technique that couples can try to use because naturally, you know, if we get in opposition or we're having a conflict with our partner, the way our brains are made is we want to argue. We want to keep making our own point. We want to say it again, or we want to say it louder, but that's not going to help. So if we focus on where are there parts that I can support about what my partner's saying, or where are the parts where I can say, I can see why it seems that way to you, or, you know, I get that point of view and that makes sense, you know, this part or that part. And yet I'm asking you to keep considering the part that I'm pointing out. Mm -hmm. So I think looking for that area where there's sort of overlapping circles in the conversation where you can agree on and just continuing to emphasize that is one kind of a quick tip that I can offer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I won't deny it. These are complicated problems. And of course, we all care about our children. People get very impassioned. What I I want to um, encourage people to do is avoid getting in such a position of advocacy for your child that you're going against what your partner's saying. Mm-hmm. Because if your kid feels that you're in opposition or there's tension about them, they're going to react to that. You know, they're going to pick up on that. Whether they overhear arguments or not, it doesn't really matter. They're attuned enough that they're going to sense what the atmosphere is in your home. So the more you can work toward some kind of um, moving in the same direction with your partner, or, you know, if you can't do that, it's probably time to get some help from either a parent advocate or a therapist or somebody who can help you hash this stuff out because you do need to get united and you need to be moving in the same direction or your child will suffer for it. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And that is something I hear from from a lot of parents who are, they do sometimes feel like it's me and my child um, Mm -hmm. or my children against my partner. Um, You know, it can become more of an adversarial or exclusionary relationship, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really important to to be mindful of how critical it is for our kids that they feel that the parents are working together and that they're united and, and connected in, in parenting them. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the gifts of uh, mixed neurotype relationships, because I I can only imagine that you also see in, in your practice and when parents uh, or couples come together to do this work, that these relationships can actually be really rich and deep and in a way that a neurotypical uh, couple may not experience. What what would you say are some of the gifts of mixed neurotype relationships? Seeing how couples can sustain curiosity about one another is really exciting and rewarding. And I think that is an infinite journey for any couple, really, but it's particularly uh, challenging and uh, deep. You know, it's very intricate to get to know the internal world of another person and how they tick. And if you aren't naturally wired in the same way and to look at the world the same way, it really does take some inquisitiveness. So I think doing that is one is one thing that couples can do. And um, I also think having that recognition that we each have our own strengths 
And united, it's synergy, right? It's the two of us are greater than the sum of our parts. And so when you have people who really have very different ways of operating and regarding the world and solving problems, that means that there are double strengths in the couple because they both have ways of doing things that are quite uh, diverse from one another and have that ability to be a perception check for each other. So just combining those kind of quirks or differences or uh, unique viewpoints is a real strength for couples. Again, when they can get in that mode of being uh, appreciative of one another and kind of marveling at one another, you know, recognizing, wow, you're, you're really different from me. That's pretty cool. You know, and the more people can do that as a married couple or a partnered couple, the more they're able to do that for their children too, to just affirm their their uniqueness and have that appreciation and joy, that sense of, I mean, the thing I really like about your book is it's its kind of celebratory, you know, it's just really got this kind of jubilance in the book about how there's so much possibility. It's so exciting to look at how very different people are. And when we stop squelching ourselves and try to conform, we can invent and create and think up so many fascinating ideas and wonderful solutions to problems that, uh, you know, that's really a source of um, delight and freshness for a couple. I love that. Let's talk about kids for a moment. I'm just wondering for parents listening to this who have kids who are young adults who are entering into their own uh, romantic relationships and exploring that. I think there's a lot of fear and concern and worry uh, among some parents, like, what is this going to look like? Uh, is my child going to be able to navigate a romantic relationship? And, and what might that look like? And how can I support my child so that they can, if that's something they choose to pursue, can do it in a way that can feel good for them? So what can parents of neurodivergent kids expect as they mature when it comes to love and romance? Big question. <laughs> it is a big question, and I think it's a very um, compelling one because, you know, so much of our um, guidance and education for young adults has been rooted in fear. Uh, I mean, there's another theme I appreciated about your book, that idea of possibility instead of fear. And so I think that applies also to parenting young adults and youth, that we want to help people manage their vulnerabilities. And those are very real for neurodivergent kids, like ADHD kids who have a lot of impulsiveness or who are going to go along with what the gang does or uh, kind of be the first one to take a leap. We need to find ways to protect those kids and help them manage their impulsive natures by knowing themselves well and giving them small opportunities to make choices and make decisions all along the path so that they have more self-awareness and they have more, uh, I, uh, I think of both my children uh, and so many young people as experiential learners, like the only way they're really going to get it is when they get a chance to have the experience themselves. Me talking about it or giving them a book to read, eh, it's just not going to hit the mark. So helping kids have a series of experiences and experiments with friendships or dealing with disappointment or frustration along the way in their lives is the building or the building blocks we need for them so that when they reach adulthood, they can uh, handle themselves capably. 
And one sad thing we know about autistic people is they're quite vulnerable to sexual exploitation and abuse. So we want to help protect kids with skills and awareness about how to assess who is a trustworthy person. And, you know, that starts when they're like six or seven, right? We don't do that. We don't deal with that when they're 16 or 17. We need to start helping them differentiate. How do we know if people are reliable? How do we know if we should let somebody in our inner circle or count on them to show up for our birthday party or whatever it may be? You know, we need to help our kids develop those skills and Really, the the gift of autism is also, though, pattern recognition and having excellent observational skills and being able to talk with a trusted adult, whether it's you or a counselor, uh, to have a confidant to run their perceptions by and get some feedback on, like, when I had hurt feelings from this friend, how could I have handled that? Or how do I deal with it if someone's uh, bullying me or teasing me in a mean way? So the roots of this begin when kids are quite young, that we want to help them lay the foundation for being able to size other people up and make reasonable judgments about people so that they don't end up in troubled relationships or vulnerable situations without the skills to handle it. So for my kids, for example, that meant uh, having personal cell phones was still quite new when my kids were young, but I got them phones as soon as I thought they could handle having a phone because it really gave them a chance to move about in the world, but be accountable to me. And so my kids took that responsibility seriously. And one way that I knew I could rely on them was we always had uh, agreements about when they would call me and check in, or when they would text, and how they would let me know where they were. And fortunately, my kids were not so incredibly impulsive as some are, and they were able to manage that very capably. So I had this sense of consistency and reliability about them that I was able to give them a measure of freedom. And fortunately, you know, it's probably good luck as much as anything, like nothing terrible happened. Nobody ever got arrested. Nobody got uh, in kind of awful situations or an accident or anything drastic. And, you know, my kids have landed on their own two feet. They're in their 20s now. They're doing very well. But I think really we need to be able to give our kids some series of experiences that allow them to attempt learning independently when we can be confident there aren't going to be catastrophic consequences from that. Such good, good advice. And I really appreciate all of that that you just shared. And that reminder of starting young uh, with our kids and helping them really learn to tune in and trust their guts, right? Trust their instincts about, Mm -hmm. about people and about their experiences and learn to, to understand that. We'll be right back after this quick break. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly 
We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it. I want to go pivot back again to adulthood. Um, in, in the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that you were, uh, you identified as being autistic, I think you said around 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. This is something that, is happening. I think many adults are starting to self-identify more and more, whether it's uh, autism or ADHD or other neurodivergences. And I'm wondering if you have any, I'm imagining that supports the family, first of all, the family dynamic to get that information. But do you have any best practices for navigating that process? If someone's listening to this and they're like, well, think this might be going on with me, but is it worth finding out more? Or, you know, what would you advise them to do? Uh, I may be a, a heretic in my profession, but I say, just get on Twitter or some social media site and use the hashtag actually autistic. Learn from autistic adults. Really, unless there's some reason you need a formal diagnosis for disability reasons or legal accommodations at your work, I frankly would not waste the money on formal diagnosis. I think you're going to learn more from autistic adults than any professionals. I'm sad to admit that the, my mental health profession collectively is way behind the times on understanding autistic traits or being able to accurately diagnose people. We've got a lot of catching up to do with the general population in that sense. Mm-hmm. So just using the resources that are out there and getting on social media is my very best advice for first steps and educating yourself because many autistic people are so urgent about wanting to get the message out about the potential for your child and how they've figured things out along the way as they've become adults. And a lot of us are uh, hyperverbal or hyperlexic. You know, there are a lot of writers who are autistic. Uh, There are a lot of prolific tweeters who are autistic. So there are many, many people who want to share their information with you and want to help you kind of join the community and jump on the bandwagon because there are a lot of us, I think, I think there are probably remarkable numbers of people who call themselves autism moms or autism dads who they don't realize they're actually autistic too, just like their child. So, you know, just using the resources that are out there in the popular media and listening to uh, autistic people who are already way down the road and can really share a lot of useful information with you about what your child might be experiencing or needing. I think those are really your best resources. So certainly there are a lot, a lot more good books coming out all the time. 
but it's never going to be at the speed of light like the posts on social media. Right. That's great. And listeners, I'll include some links in the show notes as well. I know there are some really great Facebook groups and there there is a lot of support out there. So I appreciate that advice. So I wanted to ask one last question and then I'd love you to let us know how people can learn more about your work. But when you first reached out to me, I, I got curious about the title of your book, which is Love and Asperger's. And I, you know, language is such a conversation uh, right now in the autistic community. And I know that that term Asperger's is is a word that's starting to be rejected by more and more folks. So I'm curious to know more about the choice to use that word and, and where you stand with that. I think there are a lot of people who self-identified or got diagnosed around the time I did or a few years before who identified with Asperger's because that was the correct term at the time. And the the book title came about because of the publisher's choice. Their recommendation was based on search terms that people use. And it's just kind of a funny split that when we talk about children, we use the term autism, but many people who think of adults are still using the term Asperger's. I think mm-hmm. it's just a kind of um, chronological uh, catch-up that we're doing as a society to recognize that autistic children do grow up to become autistic adults. And so it's okay to continue using that term. But I do recognize, I think a lot of people have a sense of collectivity or identification with the term Asperger's because it was current for a while. And, you know, those of us who are autistic, we don't really get to belong in a lot of places. We don't really get to be part of groups or clubs in a lot of ways that really feel comfortable to us. So I wouldn't want to diminish the term Asperger's for somebody who feels like that's a way they want to identify. I think it's um, it's just a very personal choice. I know a lot about the controversy be- behind the term Asperger's, but I just think we need to make our own our own language about how we identify. And so I call myself autistic, but if you don't, that's okay with me. I respect mm-hmm. that. Thank you. Thank you for answering that. And and yeah, I appreciate that. It's something I'm uber conscious of um, just because my community has so many people in it from so many different cultural backgrounds and um, neurodivergent backgrounds. And so I'm, I'm very interested in, in language. So I appreciate that. So before we say goodbye, can you tell listeners where they can learn more about you and, and check out your book, which is a great read, by the way, if you are listening to this and you are in a mixed neurotype relationship, you will get so much out of this book. It's very practical and, uh, and as I said, a great read. So how can people connect with you, Kate? Yeah, thank you for your kind words. Uh, they can find the book Love and Asperger's on any just major book outlet. I have another book coming out. It's, it's about a different topic. It's called Parenting Adult Children. So that one will also be released in June, and that'll be available on you know, Bookshop or Amazon or wherever you prefer to pick up your books. But I have a website called autistictherapist.com. And to make my work accessible to more people, you know, I can't see everybody for therapy. There's only one of me. And uh, I recognize therapy is a costly service. So I'm doing a series of information products. And so you can buy some courses, some self-study courses that I'm trying to make information rich. So if you want to go to autistictherapist.com, you'll find me there. And I also have that name on my social media presences. 
Fantastic. And listeners, as always, I will have links in the show notes. And now I would love if you could just tell us what parenting adult children is about. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, uh, I wrote this book because I hear from so many people in both generations that there are young adults who are making decisions about whether to cut off contact with their parents, or there are parents coming to me and talking about how, uh, you know, either my, my adult child won't speak to me anymore, or uh, I'm worried about them because they're using alcohol and drugs, or they're in my house and they, I don't know how to get them to move out. So there's a whole range of difficulties between the generations. And this book, too, is going to have just lots of information. It's directed at the parents, of course, but uh, just lots of information and techniques about how to talk effectively to your adult child, however old they are, whether they're 18 or 47, uh, and just to have some ways to demonstrate respect and draw boundaries and, you know, do effective kinds of limit setting with the young adults in your life or to figure out if they're drifting away and you're worried about losing contact, how to, how to appeal to them, how to engage them and how to strengthen your relationship so that, you know, you get the joy of the lifetime with the person that you've parented, not just the, the zero to 18 years of the heavy lifting. For me, my kids are in their late 20s and it just keeps getting better. I'm just so delighted to watch them grow and have them in my life and be interested in what they're thinking about. They keep me current on popular culture and other things I would have no way of knowing. So I just think parenting should be a lifetime pleasure. And I want to help people have that sense that we don't just boot our kids out at 18 and then they're not relating to us anymore or we become obsolete. We, the generations need each other and there's too much stratification in our society. We need parents and young adults to continue to relate and, and teach one another. Hmm. Sounds like a great resource. I look forward to checking that out. That's very exciting. Well, Kate, thank you so much. This has been a very insightful conversation and so helpful. And I just appreciate it. I'm so happy you reached out to me and that we've gotten to connect and I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really been a delight to talk to you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. You can find links to all the resources my guests and I discussed on the detailed show notes page. Just go to tiltparenting.com slash podcast and select this episode. If you love this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. For as little as $2 a month, you can help cover the cost of the hosting platform, editing, production, and more. Just go to patreon.com slash tiltparenting to learn more. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com.
feel like you're the martyr in your family, you're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the no guilt mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.